This week, we introduce the first segment from the program, The Story of Moses, taught by Glenn Colley. Through the course of this three-part program, Glenn effectively weaves the events of Moses' life from the providential care as a young baby through the dramatic Egyptian exodus to Moses' mountaintop death at the edge of the Promised Land. Part one is titled, Moses the Prince, and covers the significance of the first 40 years of Moses' life, from the providential care as a young baby through his life as a prince in Egypt. If you like today's podcast, then you can continue the story online by watching the next two parts of this story's telling at video.wvbs.org. You must always remember that power and greatness are not the same thing in leaders. I mean, throughout history, we've known many leaders who were very powerful, but who were not good men. Moses was both powerful and good. Now, everything I know about Moses, I learned from the Bible, the book of God. Moses was one of the boldest, most impressive lawgivers to ever draw breath. You don't have to take my word for it. Important men through history have exalted Moses. In the United States Capitol, I mean Washington, D.C., in the House Chamber, there are 23 white marble relief portraits over the gallery doors. They depict historical figures noted for their work in establishing the principles that underlie American law. And you look at those faces. It's Thomas Jefferson, Napoleon, George Mason, Edward I. These sculptures are created by seven different people. Now watch, the 11 profiles on the eastern half of the chamber face to the left. The 11 on the western half face to the right so that all of these faces of these great men look toward the center to a full-faced picture of one man. Moses is in the center of all of them. Only Moses is pictured staring forward. It is a tribute to the fact that great men have always exalted Moses as a leader. And you go to the Bible. The prominent character in the Old Testament is Moses. His name is mentioned 750 times in the New Testament, 80 times. But it isn't just that. The law of God in the Old Testament is called the law of Moses. Now, I want you to find that as remarkable as I do because the New Testament law is called the law of Christ, even though the apostle Paul wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. You don't ever hear it referred to as the law of Paul, but the law of the Old Testament is called the law of Moses. But it's not just that. God referred to Moses as a man with whom he spoke as two friends would talk. Takes my breath away. The very idea that God would speak to a man in those terms that he talks to Moses as two friends would talk. And one more thing. On at least two occasions, God offered to destroy faithless Israel and raise up a nation from the seed of Moses. I mean, let's just have you start a family, and from your descendants, I'll create my nation. I, I don't know what to say to that, except that God knew that Moses was the kind of man whose influence would so permeate a generation of people and a next generation that this would be a great nation. Now, that never happened, of course, and perhaps God was just testing Moses when he would make these suggestions. 
But I can tell you this, it's a great compliment to this man whose name was Moses. Today, I'd like to begin telling the story of Moses. I want to start with his birth and his progression through life. Maybe sometimes we see a child who's underprivileged and we overestimate his disadvantages without realizing that oftentimes it's the struggles in life, the, the heat in the crucible of strain, which proves to eventually shape a man into a great leader. I want you to consider Egypt leading up to the time of Moses' birth. We have to go backwards a little bit before we can go forward. Joseph is a descendant, a son of Jacob. Now Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Israel is going to produce the nation of God. And the reason it's called that is because eventually God's going to bring the Messiah from this seed line, from the people of Israel. But they're a small family, and one of the sons is named Joseph, who comes to Egypt and gains power by the blessing of God in Egypt. He is a very powerful leader. There's a famine in the land, and Joseph brings all of his people, the descendants of his dad Jacob, the Israelites, into Egypt to a, a land called Goshen there on the, the Nile Delta. It is the most beautiful part of Egypt. And there they procreate. There they have more and more children and time passes by and Israel grows to be a very large nation. But that's not all that happens. During this time there's a political shift. It's, it's, it's a new day in Egypt, a new agenda, a new Pharaoh who didn't know anything about Joseph or appreciate his family. And in fact, that appreciation which once existed for Joseph and his people is replaced by a dark suspicion. It's so important, isn't it, that leaders always have a grasp of history. If I had my way about it, every leader would be a, a historian. Because if we, don't, if we don't understand history, we're doomed to repeat the mistakes of history. Well, Pharaoh doesn't understand history. He doesn't understand about the Israelite people, that they don't pose any threat to Egypt. And he's afraid of them. They've grown to be a very large nation within his nation. He's scared of them. And his logic goes like this. If we have a nation to attack us, it'll be awfully easy for them to to make league with the Israelites who are on our soil, and we won't be able to defeat them. The Israelites are so large, if they join together with another nation against us, they'll win, they'll defeat us. Pharaoh was just afraid. He was, he was scared of them. It was unfounded, but he was scared. And so he did a very bad thing. He made the Israelites slaves, and he put taskmasters over them. They will be our slaves. And they'll build us supply cities, Python, Ramses. Large cities will be constructed by these new slaves, the Israelite nation. But it didn't work. I mean, his, his scheme didn't work because, because they, kept, they kept on multiplying. More and more children born to the Israelites until they grew into an even larger nation. The harder he made their burdens, the, the larger they seemed to grow. And so it went from bad to worse. His second idea was to go to the Hebrew, the Israelite midwives. And this, he, he had 
a miscalculation here. I mean, what he said to the midwives was, now when you birth the babies, if it's a girl baby, you keep the baby alive. But if it's a boy baby, your instruction is to kill the baby. Are you kidding? These are, these are women who have trained in midwifery. These are women who love mothers and their babies and, and birthing the baby. They love, they love life, and they're not going to do this. And they, the answer was no. And furthermore, they understood that people who take innocent lives are going to one day have to answer to God. They're not about to take the lives of these boy babies. And so this doesn't work. But then it gets worse. Pharaoh commands his subjects, his soldiers, to go and find the male babies of the Israelites and throw them in the, in the river Nile. It was massive infanticide. The, the wailing, the pain that must have come up from the Israelite people at this time is, is staggering. He said, every daughter you shall save alive, but the boys you shall kill. Just snatch them from their parents and throw them in the Nile River. Sixteen centuries later, a Christian by the name of Stephen is going to reflect on this, and he will say, this man dealt treacherously with our people. He oppressed our forefathers. He made them expose their babies so that they might not live. Now, as we go through the story of Moses, it's going to be critical that you remember how awful it was to live in Egypt. These were slaves. They, they lived in what was called the Iron Furnace. It's important that you remember how bad it was because that reality is going to become significant as we go on, go on with the story of Moses. All right, it is in this context that Moses is born. He's born a slave. He's born to slave parents. He's born in a time of oppression. But, but it's not just that. He's born in a time where you got soldiers outside the houses who are looking for male babies. And when they find them, they kill them. Amram and Jochebed are the parents of Moses. They're people of faith. They saw that he was a a beautiful child, but this is, every parent sees his child as being beautiful. It wasn't just that. It was that prophecy had said that, that the people of Israel are going to stay in this bondage, this nation, this place of Egypt, for 400 years. Well, those 400 years are about up now. And so perhaps there is talk that, that there's going to be a deliverer and I don't know, but, the, but the, what they saw was that there was something special about this baby, this, this Moses child. And then they weren't afraid. They weren't afraid of the king's commandment. And so they were going to disobey him. Listen to me. There have been moments in history when governments were controlled by evil men and civil disobedience was the only right thing to do. And that was true at this time. Moses' life is best told in three equal segments. And they're 40 years each. He's going to live to be 120 years old before he dies. The first 40 years contains Moses' birth into slavery. Jochebed, his mother, Amram, his dad. He has, he has two siblings, older siblings, Miriam and Aaron. They live in what would be called 
the iron furnace. It was descriptive of a time of awful slavery and oppression and a hatred. They're living in a nation that's governed by people who hate the Israelites because they're afraid of them. It was in this time that Moses was born. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful or a special, a goodly child. And they were not afraid of the king's commandment. Not afraid. Now remember this. This is faith. Faith gives courage. It's, it's, it's confidence that you're doing the right thing that gives you courage. They're, they're not going to be dissuaded. They're, they're sacrificing or risking their own lives to do what they know is right by God. It's faith. So they keep him a secret. Now... That's not going to be easy to do. I, mean, I, I know something about babies, and babies uh, are noisy creatures. Babies cry for all sorts of reasons. They, they cry sometimes because they need changing. They cry sometimes because they're hungry. And, and sometimes it's in the middle of the night. I mean, you, you know how it is with a baby, a young baby. You're going to be getting up through the night to feed that child, and Moses was normal like that. And sometimes a baby cries just because he's He's working the, the, the muscles in his lungs, you know, and he just wants to hear himself cry. The problem is that Moses is born in a time wherein other people can hear him cry and it poses a dire risk. I mean, because if someone outside the house should hear the baby cry, they could become an informant and, and he would be killed. Or, or if a soldier happened by the house at a time when Moses, the baby, cried, why, it wouldn't be a... It wouldn't be a, a slow thing. It would be a rapid thing. It would be that, that the soldier would enter that house. He would snatch that baby abruptly from the mother's breast, and he would head toward the Nile River. Now, you, you can imagine the nightmare of living like this. You can imagine during these months how it was for Jochebed and Amram to try to protect their baby. It was a, it was a terrifying time. Did did. did Jochebed dream of this. Did Jochebed, was she troubled at night with, with nightmares of how this thing was going to, well, it happened. It, it, it was three months. They did it for three months, and then, and then no more. It, 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 just, it just couldn't keep going like this. And so they had an idea. They would make a bassinet, a, a floating bassinet. They would weave together papyrus reeds. They would make it watertight with some black pitch until it was all sealed up well. They would take and put the baby, wrap the baby up and put, put him in this bassinet. And this is the interesting part. They would float the baby in the Nile River amongst the reeds. It's brilliant. I mean, it's, it's, it's brilliant because you, you, you can't imagine somebody coming and looking for a baby in the place where babies die. This is where they're throwing the babies. It's the last place I suppose anybody would expect a baby to be hidden. Now, in addition to this, Miriam, the older sister of Moses, was positioned close enough that she could watch the baby. I, I suppose there would be times maybe when she would go and change the baby or, or maybe she would go and fetch the baby and secretively carry the baby to his mother for feeding. Now, I don't know how all that worked, nor do I know how long a time elapsed before this next thing happened. But Pharaoh's daughter comes along and she sees this little bassinet. Oh, she doesn't know this. But that little 
bassinet, that little ark, little boat that contains that baby is one day going to sink Pharaoh's battleship. Pharaoh's daughter happens along that way. Now this is remarkable because it's clearly providence from God. It's not miraculous. Miraculous is when God stops the flow of things as they are and He inserts His will and then He starts the flow back again. This is not that. This is providential. Providence is where God, without miraculous means, orchestrates his, He orchestrates a thousand different things to bring about His will. Here's the daughter of Pharaoh. What is she doing down there at the muddy Nile River? I mean, doesn't she have beautiful marble perfumed baths in the palace? Why would she come down? To, maybe, I don't know, maybe, maybe she used to swim here when she was a child. I don't know, but I know this. On that day, Pharaoh's daughter comes and she has her maidens with her and she's going to bathe in the Nile. And when she gets there, she observes this bassinet. The baby, Moses, cries right on time, just, just like it was on cue. <clears throat> Heard a man say one time that baby Moses wasn't stuck with a pen. He was pinched by an angel. I don't know, but I know this. He cried at just the right time to get the notice of this princess. And she sends her maids, go out there and get the baby, bring the baby. Let's see what, the, what this is about. And, and the, the maternal instincts are kindled in her heart, and she wants to adopt this Hebrew baby. Well, Miriam runs in, of course, right on cue, and Miriam says, oh, I see you're going to take this, this baby home with you. Uh, you you'll, need, you'll need a woman to nurse this baby. You, you'll need a, a wet nurse to nurse the baby. And uh, I know a Hebrew woman who could do that for you. There's a, that's, there's a sad note to that, I mean, because the truth is there were lots of women whose breasts were filled with milk because, because their babies had been thrown into the Nile. So there was a natural, I suppose, suggestion here in the ears of the princess. She, that just made sense to her. She said, oh, yes, yes, you, you go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby, and you tell her, I'll pay her. Did you come to the palace, bring her to the palace. And, and so that's what happens. Now, it is the daughter of Pharaoh who names the baby Moses. Now, now Moses is an Egyptian name. I, I don't know if, if Amram and Jochebed had ever named, you suppose they named the baby during those three months, was there a name for this baby, I suppose? I, we don't know what it was. We know him as Moses. Moses is an Egyptian name, more akin to Ramses than to Abraham or to Isaac or to Jacob, a Hebrew name. Well, anyway, she hires Jochebed. Now, we assume that Jochebed stayed with Moses for an extended period of time in the palace. We don't know how long, nor do we know what happened to Amram. History deletes Amram. Maybe he died along at that time. But, but Jochebed apparently was the one who had the most profound influence over Moses. What we do know is that there's going to come a day in Moses' life as a grown man when he's going to decide definitively that he is an Israelite and that he's going to serve not the gods of the, the Egyptians, but he's going to serve Jehovah, the one true and living God, the creator of all the world. That's who he will serve. Well, where did he get that? Thus we assume that Jochebed, his mother, woman of great faith, 
stayed with Moses perhaps an extended period of time while he was growing up, and from her he got his faith. But I want you to appreciate the fact that God is grooming this Moses to be a great, great leader of Israel. The Egyptian school system was the most sophisticated in all the ancient world. Sons of kings of the Syro-Palestinian states were sent to Egypt to study with the Egyptian aristocracy. And of course, that made sense. I mean, from the Egyptian point of view, because it would make them pro-Egyptian. Moses would have mastered the hieroglyphic form of writing. He was an Egyptian. He'd have listened to the court music of the skilled harpists, and he'd have heard the court maids read aloud the Egyptian literary history. He knew Egypt. He knew pharaohs. He knew history. He was called, he was called skilled in all the knowledge of the Egyptians. Josephus, the first century historian, describes Moses this way. He was tall, he was beautiful, and he had superior understanding. He had grown into his manhood in the golden palace of the king of Egypt. Now, he's going to live there for 40 years. And so we're going to fast forward here. It's been 40 years since he was adopted by the princess. Think of the 40 years. He grew, he grew up in the palace. He ran up and down the hallway of the palace. He, he ate from golden bowls with golden spoons. He had servants to tend to his needs, and he wore silk and linen. He was king-like. He was royalty. When do you suppose he learned he was an Israelite? I, I, I don't know. I, I assume that Jacobetta's mother was there teaching him all along through those growing up, those formative years. When did his faith become his own? Now, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. Uh, I want you to grasp that. Who, who put that Israel or the love for Israel in Moses' heart? Did God do it? Did Jochebed do it? It's always been my assumption, again, that, that it was Jochebed. He, he, he spent time with his mother. It is, a, it is a tremendous tribute to the amazing influence of a mother. What Jochebed put in this boy, Moses, all of Egypt and all that is involved in that was not able to take out. She, he's going to come to the place in his life where he chooses to suffer affliction with the people of God than to be an Egyptian. How hard must that have been? Well, it goes like this. One day Moses is among the Israelite people and an Israelite is being abused by an Egyptian. I suppose this happened a lot, but Moses hadn't seen much of it apparently. And now in his heart, he is Israelite and he wants to defend. It hurts him to see an Israelite abused like this, being beaten by an Egyptian. And maybe he figures that the Egyptian's going to kill him. I don't know, but I know this. Moses intervenes. He looks this way and that to make sure they're alone. And Moses intervenes and he actually kills the Egyptian in order to defend the Hebrew, to save the Hebrew. Buries him there in the sand. The next day, Moses finds two Hebrews fighting. 
Now, you've got to appreciate the fact that the, the Hebrews, the Israelite people, don't see Moses as one of them. They have no affection for Moses. He's an Egyptian, and in fact, he's aristocracy. He's the blue blood of the... They don't have any love for Moses. Anyway, Moses sees two Israelites fighting, and he goes and he says, Look, guys, separate. Let's, let's, let's break this up. Y'all don't fight with each other. One of them said, Well... Will you kill me like you did the Egyptian? It, it, it makes Moses' blood run cold because, because he knows that he was seen killing that Egyptian. He knows that it will be told, as a matter of fact, by now perhaps it already has been. King has learned about it. It's a capital offense, and the king has already pronounced that Moses must die. So you have two things going on here. It's time for Moses to leave Egypt at about the same time that he knows he is an Israelite. It is who he is. It's, it's, these are his people, and their God is his God, Jehovah God. Now, what I want you to appreciate next is that to choose this, to choose to leave Egypt, he could have stayed and fought this thing and perhaps had his power back, but he made the decision to go with God's people. But it was a huge sacrifice to choose God's people, the slave people Israel. Let me, let me see if I can help us grasp more fully this vital point. Howard Carter, a British archaeologist, had been doing excavations in the Valley of the Kings near Luxor, Egypt, for oh, several years. Eh, it wasn't going very well. In fact, he almost gave up. This was in the early 20s, 1920s. In November of 1922, he discovered the tomb of the Pharaoh Tutankhamun. Now, you probably don't know him by that name. You know him, as I do, by his more common name, King Tut. That's how he's come to be known. Now, King Tut reigned only briefly, only about seven to nine years in the mid-14th century B.C., according to generally accepted chronology. The young Pharaoh was only about 18 years old when he died. Now, a couple of considerations need to be mentioned for preparation for what I'm about to say. First, King Tut was a thoroughly obscure and very unimportant ruler. He's not one of the big ones. He's one of the little ones. Also, his abbreviated reign was in the declining days of Egypt's glory. But in spite of all these, these circumstances, the treasures of Tut's tomb were... Fabulous, beyond description. The archaeologist Carter described his initial view into what's called the antechamber. That's just outside the burial room. It housed many of Tut's treasures. And it says this, the history says this, As my eyes grew accustomed to the light, details of the room within emerged slowly from the mist. Strange animals, statues, gold everywhere, the glint of gold. There were around 5,000 artifacts subsequently discovered. I mean, there were golden beds. There were gold-covered chariots. There were carved walking sticks and, and bowls with inlaid gold. There was, a, there was in that tomb a throne that was encrusted with gold. There was silver and there were jewels. Um, I, I'm describing all that to make this point. It illustrates the ancient saying that in Egypt, 
gold was as common as dust. But what was the significance of this for Bible students? Well, in reference to Moses, it's a critical point. One professor noted, to the biblical student, the interest lies in the picture which was presented of the wealth and glory of Egypt. This is the land and culture which Moses abandoned for God and for his people's destiny. He was going to be the the leader of the people of God. He had faith in God. He wanted to be part of God's people. He left all of that. But again, here's the point about Tut. If the tomb of King Tut, a boy king, could produce the wealth, the, the, the beauty, the art, which was so astonishing to the world, what must the palace of a really great Pharaoh I mean, like Ramses II, who we assume was the, the Pharaoh during Moses' time. What must that have been like? Now, then when you read about Moses choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, you really get it. Moses is 40 years old. Next segment, we're going to talk about Midian, present-day Saudi Arabia, in the second 40 years of Moses' life. Thank you for listening.